Welcome to another episode of Audio Law, the law podcast for busy people, brought to you by Illustrated Law. My name is Claudia Opper, and today we're going to be looking at a case that shows how awareness of confinement plays into a charge of false imprisonment. We'll be doing so with the case Parvey v. Kingston, 41, New York Report, 2nd Series, 553 from the year 1977. As you listen to this episode, please consider donating a dollar or two so we can keep creating more helpful podcasts like this one. In order to donate, go to www.illustratedlaw.com. On the homepage, you'll see a green donate button. If you're able to give a dollar, two dollars, anything really that you can spare, we'd really appreciate it. And in general, we appreciate your support. Let's go ahead and get into the facts of this case. Sometime after 9 p.m. on the evening of May 28, 1972, a date which occurred during the Memorial Day weekend, two police officers employed by the defendant city of Kingston responded in a radio patrol car to the rear of a commercial building in the city where they had been informed some individuals were acting in a boisterous manner. Upon their arrival, they found three men, one Raymond Dugan, his brother Dixie Dugan, and the plaintiff Donald C. Parvey. According to the police, it was the Dugan brothers who alone were then engaged in a noisy quarrel. When the two uniformed officers informed the three they would have to move on or be locked up, Raymond Dugan ran away. Dixie Dugan chased after him unsuccessfully and then returned to the scene in a minute or two. Parvey, who the police testimony shows had been trying to calm the Dugans, remained where he was. In the course of their examinations before trial, read into evidence by Parvey's counsel, the officers described all three as exhibiting in an unspecified manner evidence that they, quote, had been drinking, unquote and showed, quote, the effects of alcohol, unquote. They went on to relate how when Parvey and Dixie Dugan said they had no place to go, the officers ordered them into the police car and pursuing a then prevailing police standard operating procedure, transported the two men outside the city limits to an abandoned golf course located in an unlit and isolated area known as Coleman Hill. Thereupon, the officers drove off, leaving Parvey and Dugan to, quote, dry out, unquote. This was the first time Parvey had ever been there. En route, they had asked to be left off at another place, but the police refused to do so. No more than 300 feet away from the spot where they were dropped off, one of the boundaries of the property adjoins the New York State Thruway. There was no intervening fences or barriers other than the low three-way guardrail intended to keep vehicular traffic on the road. Before they left, it is undisputed that the police made no effort to learn whether Parvey was oriented to his whereabouts, to instruct him as to the route back to Kingston, where Parvey had then lived for 12 years, or to ascertain where he would go from there. From where the men were dropped, the Quote, humming and buzzing, unquote, of fast-traveling, holiday-bound automobile traffic was clearly audible from the throughway. 
and their befuddled state, which later left Parvi with very little memory of the events, the men lost little time in responding to its siren song. For, in an apparent effort to get back, by 10 p.m., Parvi and Dugan had wandered onto the throughway, where they were struck by an automobile operated by one David R. Darling. Parvi was severely injured. Dugan was killed. Here, we have an issue of whether a prima facie case was made out. As we move into the reasoning, we first review the cause of action for false imprisonment, and that is, quote, the plaintiff must show that, number one, the defendant intended to confine him. Number two, the plaintiff was conscious of the confinement. Number three, the plaintiff did not consent to the confinement. And number four, the confinement was not otherwise privileged, end quote. Elements one and three are present, no problem here. When the plaintiff stated he had no place to go, he was faced with but one alternative, arrest. This was hardly the stuff of which consent is formed, especially in light of the fact that Parvi was, in a degree to be measured by the jury, then under the influence of alcohol. It is also of no small moment in this regard that the men's request to be released at a place they designated was refused. Moreover, one of the policemen testified that his fellow officer alone selected the location to which Parvi was taken. Indeed, this was a place to which the police had had prior occasion to bring others who were being, quote, run out of town, unquote, because they evidenced signs of intoxication. Further, putting aside for the time being the question of whether such an arrest would have been privileged, it can hardly be contended that, in view of the direct and willful nature of their actions, there was no proof that the police officers intended to confine Parvi. Element 2, consciousness of a confinement, is a more subtle and more interesting sub-issue in this case. False imprisonment as a dignitary tort is not suffered unless the victim knows of the dignitary invasion. Interestingly, the Restatement of Torts, 2nd Series, Section 42, too has taken the position that there is no liability for intentionally confining another unless the person physically restrained knows of the confinement or is harmed by it. However, though correctly proceeding on that premise, the appellate division, in affirming the dismissal of the case of action for false imprisonment, erroneously relied on the fact that Parvi, after having provided additional testimony in his own behalf on direct examination, had agreed on cross that he no longer had any recollection of his confinement. In doing so, that court failed to distinguish between a later recollection of consciousness and the existence of that consciousness at the time when the imprisonment itself took place. The latter, of course, is capable of being proved, though one who suffers the consciousness can no longer personally describe it, whether by reason of lapse of memory, incompetency, death, or other cause. 
specifically in this case, while it may well be that the alcohol Parvi had imbibed or the injuries he sustained or both had had the effect of wiping out his recollection of being in the police car against his will. That is a far cry from saying that he was not conscious of his confinement at the time when it was actually taking place. And even if plaintiff's sentient state at the time of his imprisonment was something less than total sobriety, that does not mean that he had no conscious sense of what was then happening to him. To the contrary, there is much in the record to support a finding that the plaintiff indeed was aware of his arrest at the time it took place. By way of illustration, the officers described Parvey's responsiveness to their command that he get into the car, his colloquy while being driven to Coleman Hill, and his request to be let off elsewhere. Now, we'll be getting to the holding of this case, but before we do, let's hear about the sponsor of this episode. This episode has been brought to you by Illustrated Law. Order your Illustrated Law book on Amazon for only $15 today. Unlike traditional law books, Illustrated Law books have illustrations, practice questions with answers, key takeaway summaries, and so much more. It's the simple way to learn law efficiently. There are currently three Illustrated Law books available, and those are Constitutional Law, Torts Concepts, and Criminal Procedure, Investigation, and Justice. Get yourself a copy of one of those books, or maybe all three, today. Let's get back to Parvey v. Kingston with the holding of the case. At the very least, it was for the jury, in the first instance, to weigh credibility, evaluate inconsistencies, and determine whether the burden of proof had been met. So, what we can take away from this case is that false imprisonment includes awareness of confinement. Additionally, some jurisdictions say there is harm by restraint instead, which is important when looking at examples of diabetic shock, senility, or mental disabilities. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this podcast helpful. If you did, remember to head over to illustratedlaw.com and donate a few dollars. Tell your friends about Audio Law and check out some of our other podcasts. As Audio Law is the law podcast for busy people, I hope this episode helped make your day a little less busy. See you next time. Thank you.